everyone. You're doing great today. It is Wednesday, May 5th, and I am Rafael Garcia, and I'm here with Sean Humes for episode 203 of the MMA Ratings Podcast. We have a lot to talk about today. Uh, I'll say a lot in air quotes. We got some topics to talk about today. But before I get to that, Swan, let everybody know how you're doing. Uh, not bad. Same as usual. Just kind of staying busy, man. Just staying busy. A lot of stuff to do. Kids graduating about a month, a little bit less than a month. And then uh, summer's coming and we figure out what's going on from there. The triplets, right? Yes. What you going to do with them, man? You going to make them go right into work? Um, how, okay, how'd you decide which one gets to go to college and the other two that don't? Oh, they're all going. They're all going. I think they're going to start a community college first, though. They had uh, some offers to go play at, um, I think, Ohio and Missouri and some other places, San Francisco. But they decided I don't think they want to play basketball anymore. So they're just going to find schools they want to go to and then uh, probably go to community college first and then transfer to a bigger school. You should have had them all fight it out. And whoever wins, they get to go to an actual big four-year four-year college, go play some ball somewhere in the other two. They got to fend for themselves. That's how you do it. I don't – I only think one of them, like my my one daughter, Geneva, I used to show her how, like, some basic self-defense. She's really heavy-handed. She has a, a real nice jab, real, real, real rough straight right hand. It's it's vicious, man. It's it's legit. But the other two never really got, got that far into it. Okay. My youngest right. daughter, daughter can boss a little bit. She can slip, parry, come under, right hand, left hand jab. So she's not too bad with it. On another show, we'll ask you to uh, set up the – Dream fights. I don't want your kids or your wife to see that we're talking about this topic on the show because I don't want them to show up coming after me either. So we're going to go ahead and skip by that for tonight. Yeah, they're a confrontational sword. So I <laughs> <laughs> see. Yeah, don't nobody. I don't want anything to do with that. But what we will be talking about tonight, we'll be talking about this weekend's fight between Saul Canelo and Billy Joe Saunders. We'll be previewing UFC Vegas 26 and hitting up some other smaller news stories from the week. But let's go ahead and jump right into this week's uh, fight Excuse me, between Canelo and Saunders. So I'm actually pretty interested in this fight. I'm going to go ahead and say it. I, you know, I'm usually pretty generally interested when Canelo gets into the ring and when he does his thing. But I'm specifically interested in this because I feel like Saunders may be his biggest test recently. And uh, Sean, what are your thoughts about that? Is, is, is Saunders probably the toughest opponent he's faced since since Triple G? I mean, not in a sense of having an awkward style and, and his physical tools. Yeah, he's he's toughest, but he's more of a, a strategy and skill toughness more than an actually physically punishing fighter. Um, Saunders is no more of a boxer. He kind of kind of moves around the ring. Uses angles. Uh, the diff- main difference is at a boxing range, he doesn't have to use his legs exclusively at a boxing range. He's pretty slick with his parries and his rolls, dips and counters and all that sort of thing. But he's mostly known as a boxer. He's never been known as a, a high-volume fighter. He's never been known as a, a particularly hard power puncher. He's more of a slick guy who counters, turns you, walks you into shots. Um, he hasn't been terribly active. I think this will be his second fight in about five months. And... Um, on paper, maybe about two or three years ago, this would have been a, probably a toss-up fight just because Canelo was still learning learning the ropes as far as establishing his identity as a fighter, really finding, really evening out his tools. But at this point, I really think Canelo has the better skill set. I think he's better defensively. He's clearly a busier fighter, better offensively. 
and he's just faced a better level of competition. One of the best things about Canelo is he fights so often, and sometimes he fights some guys who aren't really highly ranked, but the fact of the matter is he's always in camp, he's always in shape, and he's always preparing for a fight. And there's something to be said about the sharpness that comes from, from frequent activity. He doesn't – I mean, recently, he, I don't think, really think he's ever gone like six to eight months without fighting pretty often. So he's just going to be much sharper. He'll be in much better shape. Instead of having to work himself into shape and work back on his techniques and work back on his strategy, he's pretty much in camp all year round, either in camp for himself, in camp for other fighters in his camp, or he's just staying sharp. So uh, I just – I really see this as kind of a – a clear Canelo win. I would think the thing I would the thing I want to see is does Billy Joe Sanders come out to fight? Because Canelo's gonna expect him to box. Everybody's expecting him. he's expecting him to box, he's expecting him to run. I don't know that he's expecting Billy Joe Sanders to come out and actually bite down on his mouth guard and walk through some fire to get to him. I, I think if I think Billy Joe Sanders can't afford to have a fight where he looks like he's running or he's scared, especially after all the, the nonsense with the the ring. I don't think his reputation can handle it. I really expect to see a little bit more of an aggressive counterpuncher and maybe, maybe even see him take a little bit of the lead in this fight because um, you kind of cause that kind of public stink and that kind of area you've had the last couple of fights be just not very favorable or fan-friendly fan and you still have any hopes of a continuing career, you have to put on a quality fight. You have to show something. And if he's just going to stay on his back foot and box, it'll be interesting stylistically, but it won't be exciting and um uh, with the way the world is now as far as money because of COVID and everything else, people pay for exciting fights. They want they want important fights, but they want exciting fights. And if Billy Joe Saunders isn't giving him one, his value is going to drop off tremendously. If he goes five rounds with Canelo and it's a firefight and he loses, his stock goes up because it's exciting. And you don't know if he's going to be more exciting or he's going to go back to boxing. If he runs and kind of boxes and it's kind of a paint-by-the-numbers win for Canelo, that doesn't hurt Canelo because he's beating another highly ranked multiple world champion, but it hurts Billy, Son- Billy Joe Saunders because it's once again him facing a real threat instead of him stepping up and fighting. It's him trying to avoid exchanges and be defensive, which is, is what most people are expecting. What are the threats that Saunders does provide to Canelo as an opponent? Or is he someone that we should expect Canelo to just watch? Because I mean... When did he last fight? He fought, like, what, two, not even two months ago, right? Yeah. He, um, let me see. I'm pulling it up now. And Canelo fought on, I mean, February 27th. It feels like it was much sooner than that. But what are the tools that Canelo brings to the table that makes him a, quote, unquote, threat in this fight? Uh, the big thing with Canelo is his jab. His jab is just one of the better jabs out there. His ability to counterpunch. No, 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 no. We 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 already know what Saul's okay. Saul's weapons are. What about Saunders? Okay. Well, Saunders' main thing. Saunders' main thing physically, he's a big guy. So Canelo shouldn't really be able to bully him around. From what I've seen, he's a durable fighter as far as what he can take in his chin. So Canelo's never been the biggest puncher. Saunders is still close to his prime. So against some of these other guys, Canelo's fought. They have haven't been able to handle the power. They haven't been willing to want to handle the power. Saunders has never really gotten stopped, and he's really defensively sound. So it's going to be a lot harder. Canelo's going to have to work a lot harder to land his shots, and he's going to have to work a lot harder to get Saunders out there because Saunders is a big, fairly durable guy. So those are two big factors. Canelo won't just be able to get in clinches and bully him. Canelo's not going to just put three or four punches together, and he's going to he's going to crumble. And Canelo won't just be able to physically manhandle him and put him in the corners, put him against ropes. 
that that size difference makes a makes a big make a big difference in how the fight goes. Also, as I said before, Saunders is a very good defensive fighter. He's good at range, moving around, finding angles and pivots. But he's also fairly good when he, when you're in close. He knows how to control, parry, trap, kind of slip off the shots and counter. So once again, Canelo's not just going to have those clean entries for his jab, his counter right hand, his left hand to the body. He's going to have to he's going to have to set it up a little bit more. He's going to be a little bit more meticulous in what he does because this is a guy who actually knows how to box and has some defensive awareness. I think the last two or three guys Canelo's faced. They haven't been good defensive fighters. They haven't been good defensive fighters at all. He knew where to find them. They couldn't get away from his pressure. They couldn't counter or slip his shots when he was standing in front of them. And they didn't have the footwork to angle out or pivot out. So it was really easy for him to just walk him down and run him over. Um, Saunders' jab isn't too bad. He's more To me, he's more of a pot shot fighter. He doesn't really put a lot of combinations together, especially when he's facing a threat. But once again, that's going to gonna make it harder for Canelo in certain spots because it's hard to find a rhythm and timing with a guy who's throwing – maybe throwing four to five for all the, for the 10 or 13 you're throwing. It's a little bit harder to find a rhythm because it's all, you know, they're just seeing an opening and popping. You won't be a one, two, it's just a pop, let me get out. Bam, let me pivot out. Bam, let me slip. It's harder to find a rhythm in there. It's hard to build your rhythm up with a guy like that. So I would say his pot shotting, his, uh, his defensive awareness and his physical size and durability should pose some problems for, for Canelo, mostly the defense, the defense and defensive positioning. Um, he's gonna have to work to land. What he to he's gonna have to work to get in position and work to land once he's in position against somebody like BJ Saunders. How do you see this fight going on on Saturday? Do you think Saunders should be considered a? Uh, how far outside of a chance does he have from winning? And how do you see this fight going down Saturday uh, night? It's hard to see a way of him winning. My my personal way of him winning is him landing a big shot. But if the fight, if he's boxing him at range and he's kind of moving and slipping and trying to feign him and, and outsmart him, that's going to give Canelo time to get his timing, Canelo to find his rhythm, Canelo to find which shots work and which shots don't. And it'll give Canelo a chance to build some momentum before he starts taking big shots. That's why I thought if he kind of came out early and physically imposed his will and kind of put some shots to the body and put some shot body head combinations, kind of lean on Canelo, kind of make Canelo work, it would be something that would catch Canelo off guard. Because the biggest issue Saunders has have is the ring's too small, which would favor Canelo. And with a bigger ring, he has more room to maneuver. He has quicker, more exits when he gets trapped on a rope in a corner. He has more room to escape and to put more room between them. So he can kind of walk, hopefully walk Canelo into a shot or see what Canelo's trying to set up before he gets to him. So if you go through all that, all that to get more space for you to operate, and then when the, ring, the fight starts, you come right at him. I can't see how Canelo will be ready for that. And Canelo seems genuinely angry about how the fight's been going and, and the things in the public. So it'd be a risky, risky fight. But for him to really do damage or do harm to Canelo, to me, I would think he'd have to come out hard and really walk him down and come out firing and then just take the chance that you might get finished early too. If he's just going to box him, you're telling me that he's going to land something. I mean, he's not one of the bigger punchers in the division. You're telling me he's going to land some clean, hard counter strike or he's going to bust Canelo with his jab. I don't know if that's likely. Uh, Danny Jacobs is a better is a better uh, better offensive boxer to me. Um, Golovkin's is better technical, got a much better jab, hits harder. Sergey Kovalev has got a better jab, hits harder. Um, I, I don't know how Saunders will win this by stoppage, and I don't think that there's any way he could eke out a decision. I mean, he'd have to be clearly outboxing Canelo, which two or three years ago might have been possible. At this stage... I don't think it's very likely. So um, I, I think it goes to a decision. 
Uh, I think it's competitive early, maybe a little bit of a slow start early. Unless Saunders comes out gunning for him, it's going to be a little bit of a slow start. He'll pick up somewhere in the middle, but at a certain point, it's going to get to the stage where Saunders is going to have to take chances to win. And Saunders isn't a fighter who likes to take chances. He's most exciting when he feels he has a clear advantage, when he's showboating, then he might throw a little extra in there. But when he feels like he doesn't have an advantage or a guy's a real threat to him, he starts becoming more of a safety first fighter. And I think ultimately that's what he's going to he's going to resort to. He doesn't want to get finished, um, and he's going to do his best not to get finished. So, like I said, unless he lands something really big or something goes really wrong with Canelo, I don't really see a, a, clear, a clear path to victory for him. I don't see him outboxing Canelo for twelve years, twelve rounds. And I, and uh, given his character, I don't know that he can outfight Canelo for twelve rounds either. It's possible that, to me. That's the best chance: catch him off guard and try and see if you can force his hand. But um, I don't know that he has the courage for that and he's willing to risk what's going to be coming back at him. I don't know that that's the type of fighter he is. So the last question about this before we move on to our second topic, because I'm really interested in Canelo's consistency. He fought in – so he didn't fight. He fought in 2019. I think mm-hmm. pull that back up. Let me pull it back up real quick. I just closed it. Give me one second. Canelo Alvarez. He fought in May of 2019 and then November of 2019. Then he fought in December of 2020, February, and now he's fighting in May. How long do you see this keeping up? How Do you think he fights once, two more times in 2021? And who would you predict him fighting against? Um, I think he's just going to keep it up. It's I think a large part of this is coming because he's trying to make as much money as he can. And um, he's, a, he's, a, he's a big name. He, he draws a lot of eyes. So him, the more he fights, whether it's a high-level guy or a low-level guy, he's going to get paid regardless. The level of pay he comes he gets is going to depend on the level of threat. But he's always he's the cash cow. He's the Floyd Mayweather right now. He's the guy people come to when they want to make money fights. He doesn't have to come to anybody. He can pick and choose. And uh, for the most part, he's picked mostly uh, competitive and established guys. Whether he's made them look bad or not, the guys have been have been uh, close to world class, if not world champions, former world champions. So he looks pretty good in that. Um, to be honest, the way he's fighting, I think it's a smart thing to do because um, so many fighters now are, I don't want to fight this person. He's on the wrong side of the street. I don't want to pay enough money. They price themselves out of fight. He got to be 60, 70, 70, 70. 70, 30, all this stuff. And, and Canelo doesn't have those concerns because he's a star, but fans don't care about that. Fans care about you going out and performing. That's what they want to see. Your name, I want to see you perform as often as possible. And Canelo throws some easy fights in there, but he always turns around and gives you a, a high-quality uh, kind of – a high-quality kind of uh, – I can't even think of the word right now, but big fight. So – like the Kovalev fight, now the B.J. Saunders fight, the two uh, Golovkin fights, even the Danny Jacob fight. Those were guys who were world-class guys who were established guys, world champion type guys that he fought in pretty close proximity to, the, to one another. So I don't know how long he keeps this up. I think he's just trying to set the table so that when they start getting more fans back in, he can get like he can force their hands for real big fights. And I, um, But I don't think Canelo's the kind of guy who's going to be in this sport until he's like in his mid-30s and late-30s and all that stuff. I think he's here to do as much as he can and um, to get out, if you look at his record, Canelo's got like, what, 50 fights, 50 plus fights? He's been fighting for a long time. He's, he's had a lot of fights. He's been developed very well. Um, if he stopped fighting 
now he's got two and three times as many fights as, as most world champions in multiple weight classes, if you think about it. So um, I don't think he keeps his pace up much longer, maybe for another year, maybe two. Um, I would say maybe one of the Charlo brothers is coming up. Maybe uh, Benavidez, uh, Caleb Plant is another guy. One, one of those four guys I, I think would be, would be up. Um, I think one of those guys is going to have to prove their draw, and one of those guys is going to have to do something spectacular to get his attention. But um, one of those four guys will be who he's fighting next. Pretty good stuff there, sir. Let's, let's, um, let's move on to our second topic. And let's talk about UFC 26. Now, this fight had two major uh, adjustments to its uh, card. First, there was the um, TJ Dillashaw, Corey Sanhagen fight, which, which was originally scheduled to be the main event. And a lot of people were really looking forward to that because it looked like the winner was going to solidify himself as the next contender for the 135-pound title. But that fight is um, no longer going on because Dillashaw suffered a nasty cut during training. Then we also lost the fight between uh, Diego Sanchez and Donald Cerrone, which is what I was calling a pink slip on a pole match. But Diego Sanchez beat uh, Donald Cerrone to the pink slip, and got himself cut uh, a week in advance because I don't want to talk about it too much, but the whole situation with Josh Fabia and Sanchez is unnerving is maybe the word to use because I don't need, I, a lot of people are comparing it to a relationship between and like an abusive lover type of, of situation. And I see that. Um, I, I don't want to downplay the uh, seriousness of an abusive relationship by comparing this to that. But, man, uh, I just hope that Sanchez is in a good place and that the people in his life, his family, who friends, whoever cares about him, can get into his ear to kind of help him out with this. Because the things he's been saying on some of these interviews over the last week have been extremely troubling. Have you been following that at all? Yeah, well, my concern isn't so much what's happening now. It's it's the fact that this guy was able to find his way into a legitimate fighter's corner and get to the point where he's handling his training as far as his conditioning, his preparation, and handling his sparring and directing his sparring and coming up with game plans without any sort of viable understanding of um of the actual like an in-depth understanding of, of what he's, of the sport he's preparing somebody from. I don't, I mean, from what I've seen of Fabian and what I've heard him say, I don't know that he, he even watches mixed martial arts fairly closely because he doesn't seem to have any input or direction that's any, anywhere coherent or close to what's happening in the cage or what Diego should be preparing for. The stuff he's making him do is, I guess it would work if he had a standout, incredible, top-tier athlete. He might get somewhere on it because the person's athleticism would be enough. But with a guy at Diego's point in his career, with his skill set, his physical tools, he needs somebody who really knows what they're doing, who could really direct him immensely and technically and strategically prepare him um, to make the most of the opportunities he's having. I mean, Diego still has access to world-class sparring. Lots of guys love Diego come in and work with him and, and get some work with him. So it's just a matter of of who's directing him and how they're directing him. And the fact that this guy came in and uh, has somehow found a way to make a obscene amount of money and have so much control over a fighter with really no, 
no IQ for the game, no feel for the game, no no understanding of the game. It's very jarring, and it just reminds you how close combat sports are, the money making combat sports are, how uh, gross the power the power levels are, and how easy it is to access to get access into these uh these realms. You know, like I mean, I guess, and just on a personal note, somebody once asked me, they're like, "Well, what's the difference between somebody like him and somebody like you?" I'm like, I don't even know that he's a martial artist. Like, you can go to schools and talk to people who fight or who fighters, and they've they sparred me, they grappled me, they whatever. I've been in the gym with them, I've talked to them. I have like people who can people who aren't gonna who who are who are within their right frame of mind, who who would who could I guess speak up on my behalf and say, like, no, he knows what he's talking about. I don't know anybody who knows Fabio who could speak on his intelligence or his understanding of the game. I don't know who else he's I don't know who else he's worked with outside of Diego. And Diego's record with him has been terrible. So it's um it's very concerning that he's gotten into the position he's in and he's gotten the power he has. And uh, the worst part about this is it makes me really concerned about CTE and brain damage because at this point in the game, Diego should be, even if he wants to fight, he should be financially well off where he doesn't have to. And he should be in control of his faculties enough to find someone who's a competent and intelligent manager slash trainer, not this guy who doesn't seem to have any, any understanding of the sport. He just seems like he's trying to keep control of Diego. Um, and the fact that the UFC has no way of keeping a guy like this out and Diego clearly does not have the common sense anymore or the thought process to make a better decision is also very concerning. Like, he seems like he's a victim in all this. And, and, uh, and it's, it, like I said, it's just concerning. It hurts the integrity of the sport as far as uh, the legacy of the fighter. And it hurts the integrity of the sport that somebody who who pretty much has no knowledge, no background, and no sort of understanding, actually worked his way into the one of the fighters, most popular fighters in the biggest organization of the uh, of the world in the world of, of mixed martial arts. I mean, I train kids in basketball. It's not like if LeBron James just hired me, but I still have more qualifications than Fabia, and I still have more qualifications than him in mixed martial arts. So I'm half disgusted and half impressed that he somehow managed to build all this money out of Diego Sanchez with really no knowledge whatsoever. Yeah, it really is problematic. Um, and I hope, like I'm putting a strong hope on the idea that no other promotion will sign Diego and um, that he won't end up in a Bellator or a Bare Knuckle FC or anything. Because people have been concerned about Diego for a long time. And I'm wondering where his health is, where his mental state may be, because what we've seen these last few weeks, well, not even necessarily these last few weeks, these last few years, has been very questionable at best. Are they concerned with Diego the fighter or Diego the person? As the fighter, I'm, the, the fighter situation, I'm very frustrated and a bit disgusted with it, just because this guy doesn't know what he's doing. Like, literally, he does not know what he's doing. I've heard the game plan. I've heard the instructions from the corner. It's all trash. But the real concern is he's probably actually safer in the octagon for those 15 minutes because only one kind of harm can come his way. If this guy has as much control over him as it seems, if the situation is as bad as other people are saying it is, this guy has access to him in, in complete control 24 hours a day. Like, Diego's not going to be a pro fighter for the next 10 years. What's he going to do when the money runs out? What's he going to do if he, if he doesn't get picked up by another organization? What's he going to do if he has some, some kind of adverse reaction mentally or emotionally due to the stress and the abuse he's taken over the past 
last three years, much less the last 13. He's been in the UFC, 13 plus even in the UFC. What happens then? Because this guy, from what I understand, he doesn't have a lot of money. He doesn't have a lot of resources. He's not connected to a team or some kind of company. He's just an individual calling the shots. Well, what happens when the money runs out? What's to justify him sticking around Diego and, and helping him at all? Not that he's a help, but who's going to help Diego? He's burning bridges with the UFC. He's burning bridges with other fighters who, who don't agree with his, his corner man. So he's, he's just going to have, it's like, it's like you said, it's an abusive relationship where everybody else who could help is being cut off and his only, uh, his only lifeline is Fabia. But what happens when the money runs out? What happens when Diego starts getting into legal issues? What happens when the, whatever cars or house he has gets taken away? What happens when he starts, you know, really, really declining? Who's going to help him then? I mean, everybody's very concerned now. But when he's out of the spotlight, nobody's going to be concerned. Just like they weren't concerned about Jens Polar, just like they're not concerned against Spencer Fisher. We see the articles and, oh, that's wrong, and F Dana, I'm disgusted with it, and it makes me sick. That's funny because three pay-per-views have come since then, and you bought every single one of them. So you're not that disgusted. You don't care that much. Yeah, um, and that's, and that's kind of the bad part of this whole industry. That's the part that we don't talk about yep it's a business they don't care pause yourself there you go so let's 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 talk about the card itself because we have a new main event with marina rodriguez facing off against michelle waterson and i'm really interested in this fight because i think uh, rodriguez is a dark horse in this straw weight division um she's a big woman she has I think her reach is about 67, 68 inches. She's coming off of a, of a big win against Amanda Hiba, stopping her in the second round, I think, of that fight. And she's very she's very technical on the feet. I cannot think too much of her ground game. I'm not sure what that really looks like. But she is looking like someone I'm keeping a close eye on and seeing what she can do in this division. I think she's currently ranked uh, in the sixth position. She has that win over Hiba. She has a... I think a split decision that she lost to Carla Esparza. I think she has a draw on top of that with Cynthia Calvillo. So, Sean, how do you see this fight playing out? Do you think her range and her ability to control that distance will come into play the way she used it against Amanda Hibas? But Michelle Watterson is a is a pristine point fighter. She knows how to win rounds, and she only has to do that for 10 minutes. And she found a way to do so against Courtney Casey, with another fighter who had that who had that height and that range against her, so what do we see uh, going down on Saturday between this uh, these two women? I forgot it's actually a five round fight. So do you see them? Uh, do you see Michelle's game being able to outlast Rodriguez, or do you think that Rodriguez will be able to do enough work on her feet to win? I think, like, when we talk about these fights, a lot of people go into the technical aspect of it. This is where our show kind of varies a little bit. A lot of people go into the technical aspects, and they kind of touch on strategy, but it's all technique-based. This person's going to do this because of their foot positioning, their hand positioning, the crispness of their techniques. I'm aware of all that stuff, but a lot of times when I've talked to fighters and a lot of times when I've been on other shows, I always tell people, I don't really address technique. Every, everybody's aware that you can find that technical breakdowns all you want. But a lot of times when I talk to fighters, I'm like, you don't attack the technique, you attack the character of the fighter. There's certain comfort zones that have been created because they're physical tools. There's certain game plans that are created because of their physical tools or lack thereof. There's certain game, their whole skill sets. In MMA, they don't develop fully fully foreign fighters. What they do is they find somebody with a physical skill set and they 
try to build tools that play to those physical strengths. They don't really address weaknesses because they feel the athleticism is enough to resolve most issues. That's why when so many girls come into the UFC, especially women, because the, the gap in athleticism in regional MMA for most women is so huge. That's why you have these girls who go on these 12 fight win streaks, come to the UFC, and they get totally dominated because now they don't have this physical advantage, and their whole fight style is based on this physical advantage that they no longer have. Um, with Marina and Michelle Waterson, Marina's biggest thing is she has a width of skill. I don't really think she's a particularly great striker. I don't think she's a particularly great grappler as far as what she is able to apply in the UFC. But what the thing that helped her against Rebus is Rebus is used to getting to positions and overwhelming people. When she fought Dern, Rebus took Dern down left to right. Dern couldn't, do, Dern couldn't build any momentum on the feet because Rebus was tossing her around left and right. When Rebus fought, let me pull this other fight up. When Rebus, um, when she was fighting Paige Van Zandt, she dictated where the fight took place and ended it quickly. When she fought Random Marcos, she was dictating where the fight took place, countering her on the feet and uh, dominating her on the ground. It, it's She was able to have clear advantages that allowed her to control the pace, implement her physicality, and to basically just take take a lead and sit on it for the extent of the rounds. Against Marina, Marina has a wide range of skills, so there was no place that Marina couldn't fight back at. She was going to go on the feet. Marina has fairly heavy hands and is an educated striker. She's going to try to wrestle her. Marina has good enough grappling where she can defend on the ground and look for counters. She can also get back to her feet if necessary. So what happened against Rebus is Rebus was forced to work harder than she used to work, forced to work at a higher pace than she's forced used to working, and that exposed some of the defensive lapses in her skill set and the gaps in her skill set offensively. Against someone like Watterson, Watterson isn't used to dominating. Watterson's a lot of her skill set is her durability, her grit, and her IQ in fights. She's been physically dominated in multiple fights. She's been outclassed in multiple fights. Paige Mazan outclassed her, but she figured her out. Um, even Joanna, Joanna outclassed her, but she had moments in that fight. Angela Hill outclassed her. But the thing about it is she's tough enough and she has enough poise that no matter what position you put her in, she's going to fight you back in every position and every range. And while she's fighting you back, she's looking for the chinks in your armor. Do you overcommit? Do you uh, overpursue? Do you uh, look for position over submission? Do you look for submission over position? And once she figures out the pattern and what you're doing, then she starts to turn it on. If you notice against Joanna, Joanna was beating her, beating the hell out of her for most of the fights. Then there were a couple times where she had Joanna, took Joanna's back and she was close to finishing. When she fought Angela Hill, Angela Hill was dominating the fight. But she had one takedown and controlled Angela Hill. And from that, fight, from that point on, Angela Hill never really regained control of the fight again. Watterson's grit and her IQ and her poise is what separates her. Her, her point fighting just kind of allows her to control range and place without, without taking a tremendous amount of abuse. But the fact of the matter is Michelle Watterson isn't a big hitter. She's not tremendously physically strong. She's not tremendously physically, physically durable. She exploits holes in people's games. Marina, I don't know that Marina has a clear hole. Like strategically, she might have one, but technically, I don't know that there's any one spot that Michelle Watterson is so much better than that she can rest in. And um, I think that's going to be the main difference. Uh, Watterson's used to being able to pick something out and take advantage of it. Against Casey, Courtney Casey, I'll take her down. Courtney Casey won't try and get back up. She's going to search for submissions. I'll just control it from top, rack up points. Against Angela Hill, Angela Hill's afraid of the takedown. Once I take her down and control her, She's not going to open up on the feet, so now I can just pot shot her and dance around her. Against Paige Van Zandt, Paige Van Zandt's only chance was to come in and, and overwhelm her physically, but Paige Van Zandt tried to stay in her range. Okay, you're going to stay in her range. I'm going to pick you apart of range and finish you on the ground. Marina doesn't have that specific hole. She's not great at range. 
She's not great at boxing. She's not even great up close, but she's skilled enough in every spot that she can punish punish Michelle Watterson. And I don't think Michelle Watterson has the physicality, the athleticism, or the power to really slow her once she gets momentum going. And taking her down is not going to be enough. Um, looking for a quick submission, I don't think that'll be there either. And I don't think she physically has the, the strength, nor does she have the wrestling skill to chain takedowns enough to get her down and to control her for the uh, for a whole round like she did Angela Hill. So I, I really feel Marina is going to take this fight. She's a better athlete. To me, she's more durable. Uh, she hits harder. She's not as experienced. But for that experience to play a factor, like a positive, impactful factor, I'd have to see something from Michelle Watson that I haven't seen in really her entirety, her, her entire time in the UFC. Almost every fight's been difficult because of her lack of power and her lack of durability. And this is going to be yet another fighter against a younger, stronger, more powerful opponent who can physically impose their will on her. I guess she's going to, if I had to make a guess, she's going to, she's going to try to get Marina to show her hand and, and punish her for maybe get a submission. I just don't know how likely that is against somebody who's got that many physical advantages against her. So something I was thinking about as I was doing some pre-coverage work for tonight's show and some other assignments in reference to this, this card is how well does Rodriguez compete against the rest of the division? I mean, if you look at the top of the group, um, which is, I mean, I think strawweight is as stacked as any other division in the industry right now. So we have Rose's champion, uh, Wally Zhang, as number one. Yoani and Jacek as two. Yan Jalin as three. Carla Esparza at four. Mackenzie Dern at five. How does Marina Rodriguez fit within that group if she does get this win and is bumped up the ladder even higher? Um, I don't really know because the biggest thing I've seen against her is against a certain, for the most part, against a certain caliber of athlete, she's routinely kind of struggled. Hebus would have been the first one she'd actually clearly beaten. You know, she had a tremendous amount of trouble with Random Marcos, and Random Marcos has got one of the shallowest skill sets in mixed martial arts. She's pretty much just all pace and aggression. She's not a great grappler. She's not a great wrestler. She's not a great striker. She's an aggressive, tough physical striker, aggressive, tough physical grappler, best aggressive, tough physical wrestler. And she had all sorts of problems with her. She she wasn't able, able to capitalize on the many mistakes that Random Marcos makes to the point of getting a clear win or uh, decision-wise of finishing her. Against Cynthia Calvillo, I think Cynthia Calvillo's style and her size and her length essentially uh, kind of flummoxed Marina again. She had a hard time getting her entry. She had a hard time staying in her spot. She had a hard time navigating, getting to the spots without getting, you know, getting kicked, punched, or getting tied up in, in takedown attempts. So against people with layered games and with some sense of uh, understanding of the finer points and the nuance of mixed martial arts, she tends to struggle. Um, against Wiley, I don't know that physically she can match the pace and the physicality. If she doesn't get Wiley out there earlier, Wiley builds momentum and runs her into the ground. She faces Rose Namajunas. Rose Namajunas is the definition of a layer and nuanced fighter. She's got all the depth. She's got all the experience. She's faced better opponents. She's a bigger hitter. She's a bigger fighter. She's a stronger fighter. She's a more explosive fighter. And she's, to be quite honest, she's more skilled in at least two areas, grappling and striking. So I don't, I don't know that while Marina could challenge her in multiple areas, I don't see any clear path to her beating Rose. I don't think she's a good enough athlete, to be quite honest. Um, I, I feel like she could compete with everybody outside of that. But even even against a faded Joanna, I just don't know how she reacts to somebody who's got a who's got an understanding of the game. 
and has enough physicality and athleticism to challenge her not to get, not to get pulled over. That's my concern with Watterson. Watterson generally does not have the size, power, or physicality to really meet fighters who, who are willing to engage with her in every range. When a fighter is willing to hang on to one range, she can exploit it. When a fighter is willing to engage her in every range, she gets handled. Look at the Rose Nama Yunus fight. Look at the Joanna Jandre fight. All the fights she loses is when somebody is willing to meet her at multiple ranges. There's no clear hole. So Marina's athleticism allows her, is going to allow her to navigate some of the experience. But some of these other, the, the three top people at the, at the top, they have a fair amount of experience. In the case of Joanna and Rose, they have tremendous experience. And they all have enough physical tools, whether it's cardio, physicality, or power, or just enough durability to walk through, walk through some punishment. They all have enough physical tools that Marina is not going to end the fight with one shot. She's not going to be able to rest. She's, she's going to be getting pushed just as hard as they do. And I, I haven't seen enough depth in her skill set to say that she can handle that. She's got enough width. She can challenge you in every area. But if you can match that challenge and force her into a certain spot, the holes in her game start pop, popping up either. It's the same problem she had against Random Marcos. It's the same problem she had against um, Cynthia Calvillo. Against people like Tisha Torres, whose style is very shallow in itself, and who's got experience but whose style is very shallow, you can exploit that. Against Jessica Aguilar, who is so far declining physically and has a limited skill set herself, you can exploit that. But against People with layers to their game, i.e. Carla Esparza, i.e. Um, she, she, Cynthia Calvillo has some layers. And against somebody who was a comparable athlete or had enough who, who could fight her at multiple ranges, she, she didn't look great. So, um, and even against Rebus, Rebus had a chance to finish that fight early. So when the athleticism levels off, she's not nearly as dangerous. She's always a tough out because, once again, the width of her skills. But once the athleticism levels off and the person she's facing actually has a wide range of skills herself she's not she doesn't look nearly as dynamic she doesn't look nearly as um as powerful this is kind of a showcase fight for her she should win this fight and win it handily and if michelle watterson wins it they have another high profile fighter who's going to be in the top five it's a showcase fight i think they're going with marina but they're giving michelle watterson a chance to jump the line and get in get in line for a potential title fight but um this this is supposed to be a showcase fight against an uh, older slower opponent who's got experience but no no longer has the physical tools to uh, dictate pace and to control a fight anymore. So on the flip side of this, there's another strawweight fight that opens the main card between Angela Hill and Amanda Ribas. I'm also interested in that because you have two other women who may be out of title contention. I think they're trying to get Ribas another quick win, a quick turnaround win to kind of wash away what happened with uh, Rodriguez. But... Um, you know, Angela Hill is always going to be a tough out. She's going to always give everybody a tough fight. How do you see this fight going down over 15 minutes? Well, it, I really get, I really feel bad for Angela Hill because she's so charismatic. She's a good interview. She knows how to interact with people. She's a great communicator. She has charisma. She's attractive. She has a certain, a certain style about her. But she can't ever put enough big time wins together to to get enough momentum where she can actually become a star. And it's one of those people who we get to talk about how the UFC doesn't push certain fighters or certain races, but the person holding her back, holding her back the most is herself. As much as we talk about guys like Connor who are all show and all hype, Connor had to win fights to get that hype. We forget that Connor's beaten a lot of all time grades on the way to being all hype. You know, Nate Diaz, well, Nate Diaz is just all fake and he's just a phony. Nate Diaz has beat a lot of really good fighters on the way to becoming all hype or all talk. 
people forget that fact when they get caught up in the hype with or the the the, the narrative that somebody's all hype. Angela Hill is a skillful fighter, a very good athlete, but one who's never been able to put fights together. And as a result, I don't blame the UFC for pushing her. She's never done anything to justify them pushing her. For a while, it was win, lose, win, lose, win, lose. I don't care how exciting the, the loss is. Win, lose, win, lose, win, lose, win, lose. That's not enough to get attention. Beating uh, Kamalosi, Seifers, and Luke Boney, three fights in a row, that's a three-fight win streak. It's great, but it's against people who aren't anywhere near a lead in the division. And, and very few of these fights are really just decisive wins, not against the better fighters in them. You know, she has losses to Watterson. Claudia, and they're contentious losses, but the fact of the matter is they're still losses. Losses to to uh, Courtney Casey, Randa Marcos, Nina Ansarov, Jessica Andrade. I mean, like, she just has a bunch of losses, and that really hurts any momentum she would have to become a star or maybe a face for black fighters in the UFC, and, and it's really a shame to me. Um, I don't really know how this fight goes because I'm not sure how, how Revis is going to respond to getting knocked out. Getting knocked out can either make you a much better fighter because you pay attention to your P's and Q's. It can make you a much worse fighter because now you're gun shy. Part of Remus's success is her aggression, her willingness to take chances, her willingness to gauge in multiple ranges with her opponent and constantly put them under pressure to exploit whatever hole, to either find a hole or to put enough pressure on where they give her a hole to fill as far as punishing them punishing them for a mistake. Um, she, she's At this stage, I think she's a better athlete than Angela Hill. Um, she might even be a harder hitter. Angela Hill hits hard, but she hasn't really knocked out anybody of note in a while. A lot of her success is based on her physical her physical size and ability to wear someone down and to slowly break them down with kicks to the leg, kicks to the body, and um, a steady stream of, of offense. But I, I don't know that she's really as dynamic as she used to be. I would say Hebus is a more dynamic fighter. And um, Hebus is, being that she's a more dynamic athlete, she is quite good at judo takedowns. She's she's actually quite good at wrestling takedowns. Angela Hill's not a great defensive wrestler. Not not really. She's been taken down by almost everybody she's fought. And she's not hard to get up against the cage. When you put her under pressure, she tends to back straight up and, and have to fight her way off the fence. And against somebody who's got enough striking, but also is an active grappler, uh, that level change is right there. You get it, engage, engage in a firefight, drop down, take her down. And she could, she could easily do what Michelle Waterston did. Because she's got the skill, she's got a better skill set, and she's got better physical tools. The only question is, how does she handle when she first gets cracked in the face? Because at some point, Angela Hill's going to put something on her. If she can handle it, uh, it's going to be a long night for Hill. If she can't, it's going to be a short night for Hevis. I have to. I'll probably go on the side of Hevis because Angela hasn't been knocking anybody out recently. Not, not really, not dramatically, not, not at all. I don't think. And secondly, um, Angela Hill tends to give up takedowns against fighters of of a certain level of athleticism. A certain level of athleticism, if you just have enough striking to get her to engage, you can take her down. And secondly, when she knows that threat of a takedown is going to be there and somebody can finish her, she's not the same fighter. She doesn't take chances herself. She doesn't settle down and put punches together, too. She kind of pot shots and stays away and tries to control the range and land a quick combination and get back out because she knows that when she's on the ground, she's, she's at a disadvantage. And if Michelle Watterson can hold you down for almost a whole round, I, I couldn't imagine what Amanda Hebus is going to do to you. So um, it's a good fight for both. She beats Hebus. It's still a big win. It's going to push her up the line. Hebus beats her. She's right back on the fast track to a, a title fight, probably another another fight or two. I agree with all that. Um, I think the name, the the situation is whether or not 
this fight hits, 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 hits back, whether or not this fight hits the ground. If Hebus can get it there, I don't think that Angela can deal with her grappling at all. Is it really um, an if, though? Is it really an if, though? I mean, how doesn't Angela pretty much get taken down? And I mean, didn't even Ashley Yoder get her down a couple times? I believe Ashley Yoder did complete one takedown, maybe. I mean, and, and, and once again, that's not impressive, but Ashley Yoder is not any sort of athlete. She's not any sort of wrestler. Has she been cut yet? No, I think she's still in there. Okay, all right. Um, I'm, I mean, Rose Namunis is taking Angela Hill down. Um, I want to say Random Marcos is. Ashley Yoder has. Claudia Gadelia has. I mean, like, Michelle Larson, who has, who's been in a fight who hasn't taken her down and controlled her for an extended period of time, if not taking her down multiple times. It's, it, it's amazing to me that she's gotten this far along in her career and she hasn't developed a really good counter grappling game or a good scramble game. It, it just doesn't, if she, it's basically like you said, she gets taken down, it's, you basically lose that round. You take her down, you basically won at least one round. Any round you take her down in, you, you're more than likely going to win that against Angela Hill. And every fight she's been taken down, I think she's lost that round. I, I, I concur with that. I can't think of any times where, um, where she, I can't think of a time where she's gotten up. Where yeah, she's gotten taken down and she's gotten up. I can't think of a time where she's gotten taken down and she's won a round. I mean, she won, every said she won every round against Claudia Gadelia, but the one round they gave her is the one Claudia took her down. People thought she beat Michelle Watterson, but the one round they gave Michelle Watterson was clearly the round she took her down. I mean, I mean, you know, we know Random Marcus didn't outstrike her. We know that didn't happen. <laughs> so yeah, I, it's just very concerning that even now, eight, seven years later, the secret of beating Angela Hill is to be enough of a takedown threat to make her holster her own weapons as far as it goes to striking. And, oh yeah, I mean, I could definitely agree with you on that there. Is there anything else on this card that stands out to you? In my opinion, I'm looking forward to seeing what Gregor Gillespie looks like coming back. Um, it's his first fight since his first professional loss when he got stopped by Kevin Lee in 2019 uh, via head kick. So I'm wondering what he looks like because he's facing Carlos uh, Diego Fereja, and you know Diego can submit guys off their off his back, so um, he's not safe just taking him down and going from there. So I'm wondering what that fight will look like, and I'm keeping a close eye on that because Gregor was somebody that a lot of people had in this division as a true threat to the title. If he's going to get back to that. He has to pick up this win on Saturday. So what stands out to you? Yeah, uh, Gillespie and. Um and Neil are the two fighters who had, who recently had losses and they were guys who were kind of building momentum and being thought of as potential contenders, maybe not future champions, but definitely potential contenders for the title and both lost in, in fairly impressive fashion or a fairly one-sided fashion. Um, so like you said, I don't, I'm not looking for anything particularly technically. I'm not the biggest fan of either fighter, but I, I am, I'm always interested to see when you have a decisive fairly punishing loss, how do you come back? Like, because some people's whole style is built off of that 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 uh confidence that comes from never losing. The confidence from coming from never being stopped. And once that once they've been shaken, once they realize they can be stopped, once they realize they can lose, they never can regain re re regain that momentum. And Gillespie especially, he's a guy who's who's used to bullying guys and building momentum and kind of wearing them down and breaking their will and wearing them out. And uh 
that take you have to pay a certain price for that. You have to pay a certain price for that in training. You have to take you have to pay a certain price in the fight, even if you're not taking punishment to fight with that kind of pace and that physicality demands take something from you. And uh, once you lose, you might not you might not be willing to expose yourself that well. Or the minute you can't completely dominate position, somebody gets out of position before when you had lost, you just get back on them because you know eventually they're gonna crumble. But once you've been beaten, uh, you don't know that anymore. And fighting with that kind of pace and that kind of determination to force a fight into a particular range might become a, a Achilles heel to you now because now you don't you don't have a safe this is my safety zone. This is, the one thing I knew I could do was physically dominate guys and break them down. Now I lost. I don't know if I can do that anymore. And now that your opponents have seen you getting beaten, they don't have that 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 fear of just being overwhelmed by you on the ground either. So once that's gone, that that advantage you have is gone, and now it's just an even fight. I don't know that he can win. I don't know at this level if he can win an even fight. I'm gonna have to see, because before his reputation was was kind of sitting on guys. People have seen that. People knew who he was. Now that's out the window. So I'm very curious to see how he responds to that. Yeah, I'm definitely in the uh, same boat. Do you ever think we we will be talking about him as a title challenger? Uh, I had my doubts before. I I never thought he was a bad fighter. I I just had my concerns that I felt I just felt like a lot of his success was based on his ability to physically break guys down and physically dominate them. And it seems like when he faced a guy who he couldn't just physically overwhelm, uh, a lot of the issues that you that you would expect to come out came out. You know, because Kevin Lee is for that at that weight class, he's kind of a bigger guy. He's not a great athlete, but he's he's a big, strong guy. And for once, Gillespie couldn't just back someone up. He couldn't just put his hands on somebody and, and take them over here and over there. And he couldn't just physically move them every time he punched them or hurt them every time he punched them. That was the biggest difference. That physicality and the, that power didn't carry the same weight against Kevin Lee that it did against a Yancey Medeiros. And that wrestling wasn't as wrestling and takedowns weren't as clear an advantage against a Vince Pichel, who's not really a great wrestler. Yancey Medeiros was also not a great wrestler or grappler. You know, these guys had clear holes in their games um, that he could take advantage of, and then he was able to impose his will on them and physically break them down. Lee's a big guy. It's hard to break down a guy who's going to come in 15 to 20 pounds heavier than you. You wear yourself out doing that. And then also the same shot you land against Lee didn't have the same effect as they had against other guys. So now against Ferreira, we're going to see. Like, if he beats him and beats him clearly, then I, I think there might be some talk about him potentially challenging but I just don't know what happens when he doesn't have a clear physical advantage over somebody. Everybody else he fought, he was clearly more physical, clearly more durable, clearly had more horsepower, not explosive power, but more horsepower. I don't know that he has more horsepower than Justin Gagey. I don't know that he has more horsepower than Dustin Poirier. I don't know that he has more horsepower than Michael Chandler, even though I'm not a great fan of Michael Chandler, and I don't think his chin is still there. I don't know that he can physically outmatch those guys. The first time he faced somebody of comparable physical ability, he lost, and he lost pretty dynamically. And you can say it's a lucky punch, lucky shot. The fact of the matter is he got to a certain level of component, and he lost badly. Against second and low second-tier guys and third-tier guys, he looked amazing. He looked intimidating. But against a, a lower-tier first-tier, a lower first-tier guy, he didn't look like any of those things. And I think that was the last win Kevin Lee's had in, like, two years. Yeah, I mean, he got – he. He had that win. It was uh, submitted by Charles Oliveira right after that, right? Yep. 
So yeah, I mean, sense. yeah. So I mean, it's it's always a it's it's one of the biggest things. The UFC matches people fairly well, and you see them get against a certain caliber guy, and you're like, it's like the Calvin Cater thing, where people are like, oh, he's such a great boxer, he's so great. Well, they haven't faced a bunch of guys who can't box. They haven't faced a bunch of, a bunch of wrestle boxers. Of course, he can exploit them. Then he goes up a level against somebody who can kind of match his conditioning and match his durability. So those two advantages are gone. Now it's a skill battle. And then you find out he's not as skilled as you thought he was. Not in the context of MMA. Maybe in the individual context, yes. But in the context of MMA, he's not who you thought he was. Just because those physical advantages got neutralized. And his team hadn't built, hadn't developed him to the point where he had an answer for what to do when he can't physically run somebody over. Gillespie wasn't able to run somebody over. He lost. That's in the discussion. When he couldn't physically dominate, he lost. When he could physically dominate, he won. So what happens when he can't? What happens? As far as we know, anytime he faces a guy he can't physically run over, he can't win. I've never seen it proven. I've never seen it otherwise. And until I see otherwise, it's hard to bet on him as a potential title challenger because in that elite level, all those guys have physical tools, even if they're on the decline, but are, are, are comparable to what he has physically. So what does he do when he can't just dominate every position? He can't just force people or hold people up or just hit them and they go away. So far, the only thing he does is lose. So this is another opportunity to show, show otherwise. But um, I, I have my concerns as far as how he's going to perform in this fight. Good stuff there, sir. Um, let's flip over to a couple of quick news topics. I'm going to give you a moment to talk about what's going on in the world of boxing. But perhaps the biggest an announcement maybe um, was the announcement of Lewis Smoker against Sean O'Malley. And I just wanted to get your quick thoughts about this because the Sean O'Malley booking is something. I mean, he's on a great win streak other than the fight he lost to Chito Vera. But he hasn't fought any top challengers yet other than I mean, Eddie Wyland wasn't a top contender. Yeah. Cheeto, Cheeto Vera is the best guy he fought. Okay. So what do you think about the questions popping up about Sean O'Malley's booking? Is it justified or is it just continued hate for O'Malley as a character? It's actually justified. Everybody keeps comparing Sean O'Malley to, to Conor McGregor because he's he's supposedly a personality and he's different. He's an exciting striker. But – Everybody who says that Conor McGregor is actually a hype machine and a fraud, you know, they say that quite often, even though he beat the longest reigning featherweight champion of all time with one punch. He beat one of the, the all-time great lightweights in the world and dominated him in Eddie Alvarez, and he beat another top three featherweight in Chad Mendes, and everybody keeps calling him a fraud and a phony. Sean O'Malley is actually the phony. He's the guy that they're talking about when they call the Conor McGregor a hype train and a phony. Because Sean O'Malley hasn't beaten anybody. He's all his fights have been favorable style matches with guys who mostly are either want to strike with them or are forced to strike with them because they're not good enough athletes to 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 force takedowns or to get into positions to complete takedowns. Uh, Eddie Wineland was so far past his prime and, and so far declined. He shouldn't have been in there with an up and coming guy. And um, even in his last fight, when he uh, knocked out Thomas, when he knocked out Thomas Almeida, Thomas Almeida has been knocked out multiple times. Thomas Almeida isn't a, a particularly durable fighter with a great chin. Thomas Almeida isn't a guy who's on the upswing. Thomas Almeida was a guy coming off a three-fight losing streak. Three-fight losing streak, man. Three-fight losing streak. He's been knocked out three times. He's been rocked numerous times. And at the UFC level, against elite-level talent, 
Uh, I don't know that he has a win. Let me see. Uh, Eve to win. I guess he's kind of elite talent, but not really as a fighter. Brad Pickett, Anthony Burchett, Albert Morales. Those aren't elite fighters. But I'll tell you who he lost to. Cody Garrant, Rob Font. Even Jonathan Martinez isn't elite. He used to just lose to elite guys. Now he's losing to guys who aren't elite. But my point being is people hype up everything that Sean O'Malley does, and they're like, his knockouts are so impressive. His knockouts are the most impressive, unimpressive, impressive knockouts because he's beating up guys who are known for being knocked out, who guys who are a step slow, don't have the skill set to handle what he does, and no longer have the physical tools to survive his offensive abilities. Um, they've matched him very well. They built a, They built a, built him up. He's got a fan base. He's been able to show some of his character and get people behind him. But the fact of the matter is he's a guy who knows how to, who can fight, but he doesn't know how to fight. He's not a good wrestler. He's not a good grappler. Um, it's seemingly like he's kind of a front runner as a fighter and beating Thomas Almeida late in third round. If I recall correctly, I think it was a third round knockout or late second round. That hasn't impressed me because Thomas Almeida doesn't have anything for him. The fact of the matter is he's, he's, a talented fighter, but he's a built-up fighter. He is the hype job that people keep calling Conor McGregor then. The best win on his record might be Thomas Almeida. And Thomas Almeida is just just hasn't been a good fighter since he stepped into the UFC. Or, or over the, the win over uh, Eddie Wineland, because Eddie Wineland's a former WEC champion like eight years ago. Eddie Wineland isn't that dude anymore. So they keep trying to spin these fights into, into a way to build him up. Um, Smoker's not great. Smoker has some flaws on his feet. He takes chances on the ground, which could get him punished. But the fact of the matter is he is a, he is a competent wrestler. He is a unorthodox but a very effective grappler. And he's shown enough of a chin and enough of a willingness to bite down and walk through fire that I don't see how he doesn't give O'Malley, O'Malley problems. I'm not saying he beats him, but I don't see how he doesn't give him problems because he can challenge him in multiple multiple ranges and O'Malley essentially can only challenge him in one. So um this is this will be his this will be the best opponent as far as their skill set and the fact that they're in their physical prime. All the other guys he's fought who were who were close to their prime or were younger were guys who were in the lower tier of fighters in the UFC. Lewis Smoke will probably be the highest ranked will be the first ranked fight second ranked fighter he's ever faced. At this point of his career with this much hype behind you? How is this the second ranked fighter you've ever faced? Smokers is is ranked. I think Smokers ranked. I I want to say he is. And and it and even let's just say he's not ranked. He's one of the only guys that Sean O'Malley has fought who's recently been ranked as a legitimate fighter. Because um, Smokers not ranked. Oh, shocking! I know at one point he was ranked, but Marlon Vera is the only one he's fought that's ranked. And Vera sitting at fifteen. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I get what they're doing. They did a good job. They turned him into a moneymaker. They turned him into must-see TV by setting him up with good fights. But we still don't know anything about Sean O'Malley that we didn't know before. We know he's athletic. He hits hard. He moves well. He's creative as a striker. Um, he's kind of a front runner. And he has no plan B in his, in his arsenal. When plan A doesn't work, he keeps on doing plan A until it works. He has shown no plan B. And the first time a fighter did not let him have his way, he folded. He didn't even get knocked out. He just quit. It seemed like he quit. I, I can't call him a quitter because I'm not a fighter, but it seemed like he quit in that fight. So um, this fight won't really tell us a whole lot more except for the fact that he is facing yet for the second time a guy who is close to his prime physically and a guy who has quality wins in the UFC in the past year to, year to two years, whereas some of the other guys he's beaten hadn't, Hadn't had an important win in the UFC in like three to four years. 
Whenever I think, so whenever I see Sean O'Malley, I think of Culture Vulture. I mean, I just can't get into the guy. Um, I just can't. Uh, and I see what they're trying to build up with him. People love him. People are going to be a fan of his. But yeah, Marlon Vera is the only ranked fighter he's fought. And they're going to keep him away from guys like um, Devalish Feely, Jimmy Rivera. Um, I'm surprised that Ricky Simone isn't ranked. Does Ricky Simone fight at 35 or 45? I'm not sure. I think yeah, Ricky Simone's not ranked either. So I wonder what's going on here, but um, Smoker can beat him. If Smoker takes him down, it's it's a problem. Smoker can beat beat Sean O'Malley. That's the thing about it. He may not be ranked, and they're trying to give him. They're running out of guys to match him with who who can make him look good and give him that spectacular knockout. He might knock out Smoker spectacularly, but Smoker has a skill set that says that he can beat Sean O'Malley if he gets into certain spots. And unlike these other guys who were chinny and they've been finished multiple times and they can't. Their half-step slope or their reflexes and their chin isn't what it used to be five or six years ago. Smoke is still close to his physical prime. Smoke still has something to offer as a fighter. I mean, he may not be ranked, but nobody considers Louis Smoke a, a pushover by any means. So last thing I wanted to ask you about was tomorrow's, not tomorrow, Friday's um, Bellator showcase where we have Anthony Johnson returning um, to the cage for the first time in four years. Um, and he looks like he's in great shape. Looks fantastic. What do you think for what do you what do you want to see? What do you think we'll be seeing out of Anthony Johnson on Friday? I, I'd imagine the same Anthony Johnson. He hasn't fought in years, and you can be in better shape and feel like you're good in sparring. But ultimately, he's an aggressive counter puncher. He tries to pressure, or and he just fights in these big spots. You kick him in the leg, he explodes with a big right hook, left hook combination, whatever it is. But he's more of a aggressive counter puncher and. The way he hits, he doesn't have to land more than maybe three to five shots, and guys either don't want to fight anymore and they start getting defensive or they just go out. Um, I can't imagine that he's all of a sudden going to turn to a volume fighter or a jab, walk-you-down type fighter or a uh, combination throwing fighter. I, I just don't see that. I think, he'll be, uh, I think he'll be very similar to what he was before. I, I don't think he's going to be a wrestler. I don't think he's going to be a grappler. I, I expect him to have the same cardio issues he had before, um, the main thing I'm interested in is to see if mentally he checks out because he's fighting. He's not fighting Yo Romero now. Now he's fighting a guy who nobody really knows who doesn't have a much of a name. So does he go out there and blow this guy's doors off and uh, just have his way and move on to, to the next round? Or does he come out a step slow and a little bit hesitant and get out hustled to a decision loss by a guy who's really, who, who really who at his peak, a guy who wouldn't even be in his class at all? And um, I know the guy's manager. I, I know that guy's ready to fight. And um, if Anthony Johnson comes in as the same fighter he's, he's always been, there's a very clear path to victory over him. And it's a tough one because all it takes is one from him. You know, like Derek Lewis, he's like a light heavyweight Derek Lewis. Um, but there is a clear path to victory against guys who fight like the, like him, like Derek Lewis and Anthony Johnson fight. When this is all said and done, do you think Johnson comes out um, as champion? I just don't know. I mean, he could knock anybody out at any point in the fight, but the fact of the matter is he had, I mean, we always talk about activity. When was his last fight? Like five years ago? Four years. His last fight was the loss to um, Cormier? Daniel Cormier for the title. Yeah, I mean, that's four years ago. He's four years older. I don't care how good he feels. I can't imagine he's, he's at the peak of his abilities anymore, and as sharp as Steve may feel from sparring, 
I don't know how sharp he is. He hasn't been in with, he hasn't been facing live rounds in years. He hasn't been facing legitimate competition in years. And, and from what I understand, he's in a pretty good spot financially. So I don't even know if the hunger is there. Now, he just got a hunger to be the best he can be and compete. Yeah, and given his physical tools and light heavyweight division, he's still going to be, he should still be a force. But it's, I don't know that he hasn't fought, he hasn't fought in years. Now he's going to be on a schedule of fighting every so many months. I don't know that he's going to be disciplined enough to maintain it in between fights. I don't know how disciplined he is in te- in, as far as his preparation and his technical skill set. Um, until I see something, I just have to assume that he's going to be the same Anthony Johnson he's always been, which means he can knock anybody out. But by the same regards, if you can get him in the certain spots or make him work at a higher pace than he wants to, he'll 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 get tired and he'll give you something. That, that's always been the, the path to victory against Anthony Johnson. And until I see otherwise, I'm going to say it's the path to victory against him now. Good stuff there, sir. So um, let everybody know what you're working on. Uh, why don't you fill everybody in on your plans for this week? Well, I don't have a lot of plans. I, I just wanted to talk about two other things real quick in, in the place of that. Um, one, I think, is Sergio Sergio, uh, Sergio Pettis is fighting for a title in Bellator this time to, this weekend, correct? Or is it the next one? Yeah, Sergio and Juan. Juan Archuleta. Yeah, I, I really – I don't – I'm not picking any fighter over the other one. But I'd really like to see Sergio Pettis win just in the regards to he's always been in the shadow of Anthony Pettis because Anthony is the more dynamic athlete. He's much more durable. He's had the highlight reel moments that have kind of shaped the sport in a lot of ways. But the fact of the matter is Sergio Pettis has always been the better fighter. He's a better striker. Anthony Pettis is the more dynamic striker. He can hit these big, fancy blows and, and knock out welterweights with one punch. But the fact of the matter is Anthony Pettis has never been the technician, the tactician, or the strategist that Sergio Pettis is. And if Anthony Pettis has Sergio Pettis' skill set, Anthony Pettis might very well still be the lightweight champion. He wouldn't have lost to Clay Collar last week. I thought, a couple weeks ago, I'll tell you that much. I would like to see Sergio get his time in the sun and really get an opportunity to be acknowledged, at least for a short period of time, as the best Pettis in the family. I know he doesn't feel that way because that's his brother, but he's always been short, short-cutted and short undercut as far as popularity and, and the credit he got because he's never been as dynamic, as flashy, as athletically impressive as, as Anthony has. And he's never gotten the opportunities Anthony has because he's not the athlete that Anthony is. He's just a dedicated craftsman who, who, who really is close to a master of his sport as far as how he's supposed to fight and how that puts him in the best positions to win. So not hating Archuleta, not favoring him because I, I, I like whoever style better, but just for the context of skill, over necessarily athletic talent and IQ and awareness and, and focus and hard work, I would like to see Sergio Pettis win to really show that, hey, you know what, if you do this right and you take the right steps to developing yourself and approaching your, your opponents with respect and dignity that, and you use them to improve various aspects of your fight game, you can really get to the top. It can really be a difference because in every other sport, ultimately, skills are what pay the bills. But in combat sports, a lot of times, unless you're the tippy tippy top, oftentimes physical ability trumps physical skills because most guys aren't taught how to fight with a real dedication to skills and awareness. Sergio Pettis is one of those guys that I like to see that kind of pay off, and I like to see him get his time in the sun as as being roundly recognized as the best Pettis in the family. Um, finally. Uh, that Dominic Reyes loss, um, I, I saw that coming, and and I, I hate to I hate to jump on a guy, but when he fought John Jones, 
I wrote the article and I put and Michael put it on the MMA ratings like the next day. And I said, he could let this win, he could let this go to his head because because he whatever you think, if you think he bought beat John Jones, the fact of the matter is the judges didn't think he did. So I personally think he thought he let that win go to his head and he hadn't progressed his skill set any further. It progressed to a certain point, but a lot of that was built off his attributes. And now as he's facing guys who either have size and length that can neutralize that a little bit, or in the case of Prosca, durability and athleticism, you're starting to see more and more of the holes in his game. He's essentially like an athletic count. He's basically like what Obain St. Preux was in the early stages of his career, just with a little bit better of a skill set. But ultimately, when Obain St. Preux faced somebody with a huge skill advantage, he got exposed. When he faced guys with comparable athleticism, he got exposed. And Dominic Reyes, when he faced Prosca, his counter game didn't work because his whole counter game is based off of him landing a clean one, one to three shots and you physically not being able to take whatever he's offering you. Once you can take what he's offering you, his gas tank starts to wane, his defensive footwork starts to wane, his offensive output starts to wane, and the sharpness of his strikes and the variety of his strikes start to wane. And I'm not even going to talk about his defense because it doesn't exist. It's all athleticism. It's all you can beat him to a spot because he's athletic. He can, he, he can speed up and get to a spot before you can, or he can get out of a spot before he can, or he can find an angle because he's aware of them, but technically he doesn't know how to enter them. He jumps into everything. And against Prosco, he's facing another guy who had the same thing, but Prosco's got a world-class chin. Prosco gave him plenty of opportunities to finish, but he didn't have the power and he didn't have the accuracy or the setups to get the finish he needed. And ultimately, it just came down to Prosco being a better athlete and more durable fighter. And once again, you see all the holes in Dominic Reyes' game. And I'll finish with this. I told everybody, you can lose a fight and you can lose a fight. Losing, You're supposed to teach your fighter in between fights how to round out their skill set, how to be defensively aware and offensively responsible so they don't subject themselves to certain amounts of punishment that are going to alter the direction of their, of their career. That has not been the case with Reyes. He got punished badly against, against Jan for the title, punished badly, beaten up badly. And once again, in another fight, he was punished and stopped in a brutal fashion. And he was just making so many mistakes that most guys in light heavyweight can't punish him for because they're not good enough athletes to. So his team was riding on his physical tools. They did not round out his skill set. And he was getting punished throughout the fight for that because they thought he's a fighter that he is not. He doesn't have the durability to fight the style he fights. And he doesn't have the discipline to really build on the style that he's using. And it's gotten exposed again. So that's two brutal knockouts back-to-back. I mean, I know that there's been some time between, but two brutal knockouts back-to-back. And he went from a guy who was considered a top three light heavyweight to a guy who might not even be considered a top 10 light heavyweight. He hasn't, he didn't look a lot better than he did against Jan, and he definitely didn't, didn't look as dominant as he did against John Jones. So we had a guy who could have been the future of the division for a long time, but we don't know if he's going to be the future of the division for the next year. Next year, he might not be in the UFC. There you go. Good stuff there, sir. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to ask you a comic book question, but I don't remember now. We'll come back to that at a later date. But, um, yeah, as always, man, we'll be back here next week, Schwan. It's always great to have you on the show. And let's get back at it and talk about some more things next week. I'm sure we'll have some uh, fight action to rap about after uh, Saul's fight this weekend, after this card on Saturday. So, yeah, man, I'm looking forward to the conversation next week. All right, sir. You take it easy. Have a good one, sir.